right, good morning. We're going to make our way to our seats. And if you're already seated, if you want to turn your uh, book open to Judges, that's what we'll be looking at tonight, this morning. Book of Judges. And we left off in chapter 1, but we're going to be picking up in chapter 2 today. And if you're reading on an electronic device, I'm reading from the NSAB, NASB. NASB. Again, we're in Judges chapter 2. And before we start, I'd like to say a prayer. If you'd go ahead and bow with me. Most Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for this day to worship you, Father. We thank you for this time to to study your word and to look into your message for us and the history of your people and history of you throughout the ages and your love for us. Father, may we receive the message that you are wanting to send to us and may we impart that upon our lives and write it on our hearts. Thank you so much for your word and what it does for us in our lives. We uh, thank you so much for your son, most of all, and that sacrifice that we may have the hope of eternity with you in heaven. It's through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Judges chapter 2. <clears throat> and we left off in verse uh, 26, and we're going to be coming back to a couple of points on there. Uh, in fact, after the last class, um, Caleb was able to, he mentioned that, uh, um, Judah, when they had, uh, pushed out the three sons of Anak, that, uh, they were the large statured people that, um, the spies had seen when they come, came over, uh, to the promised land. And so, uh, in verse 10, it talks about, you know, the area that they lived in, the Hebron, uh, and, uh, the, the three brothers and how they had pushed them out. And so those were the people that the spies saw and said that they were like grasshoppers too. And they called them the Nymphalim, the, the large, large statured people that were, uh, great warriors of old. So uh, that was a good point that I had uh, overlooked during our last class and very intimidating foe to, uh, think about people standing Easily nine foot tall, having uh, um, again such a large stature and presence to have to fight against. They considered themselves grasshoppers in their in their eyes. <clears throat> and it's also mentioned uh, in verse twenty two, the three sons of Anak. Anyway, just a good good thing to note that I had overlooked. Um, and then we left off in verse twenty six. And then uh, through, we're going to be skipping over verses 27 through 35, but it covers all the places that they uh, they went up to go take, and that they they took most of the land, but they didn't drive out the inhabitants, and that was going against the covenant that they had made with God. 
Um, you can see the multiple uh, locations and then having that they didn't drive out. And so that's going to play a part in the rest of Judges. And you'll see that not only are they surrounded by enemies that we'll be reading about here soon, but they also have people influencing them on their own culture. So, chapter 2. And we're going to read verse 1 through 5 to start out. Now the angel of the Lord came upon Gilgal from Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive out them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted their voices and wept. And they named that place Bochum, and they sacrificed to the Lord. <clears throat> Again, we, uh, we read about that covenant that God made even before, uh, in, in the beginning of the wilderness, just after, just during the Exodus, that God made with their people about the promised land and what they, their side of that covenant, uh, was gonna look, be looking like, what they had to do to receive that promise. And obviously a lot has happened since then, but that, that promise God made was still stood. Um, and they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And in contrast, we should think about um, the covenant that God has made, the promise that he has made to us, and what we are to do to fulfill that covenant. Uh, in verse 6 and on, you'll see that um, Joshua dismiss the people to their own lands. And again, there's a lot of overlapping between the book of Joshua. and This is just recounting a lot of the things that has happened in the book of Joshua uh, for the people. Uh, and that's why we see that the beginning of Judges starts with Joshua dying. It covers a lot of uh, information that's in the book of Joshua. And now it's covering this portion again. So it's kind of confusing on the timeline, but it's important to uh, to go through, obviously. And then in verse 10... I'm going to skip down to verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work that we, which he had done for Israel. So that great generation that withstood the wilderness, that went, saw all the great works of God through um, Egypt and the whole journey out, that whole generation was gone. Um, that generation was gone, and also the generation that saw uh, a lot of the things that led up to that, because most of that generation through the wilderness didn't even make it into the promised land. But there was another generation. I've touched on this before, and I, I kind of gave that a heads up on the introduction. Um, and we'll see this point come up over and over and over again. I'm going to sound like a broken record, um, but I think it's something that is good to ingrain upon us. And, and when the Bible repeats something, we should definitely take note of that. Uh, we should definitely um, um, dwell upon that and meditate upon that uh, because the God's trying to tell us something 
when he's repeating something over and over again. Uh, Jesus does it quite often. And he, well, first of all, he knows us. He knows that through repetition, we learn easier. And, uh, so let us, uh, always stop and pause and, uh, and again, think about that. And so with this generation, it seems like every generation there's going to be a problem. Um, and what is that? Uh, what is that problem? They didn't know God. How did they not know God? The covenant that he had with them, they had um, yearly, monthly, weekly celebrations. Um, it, uh, they, just like we, do not have an excuse not to know God. Um, but yet they still, even though having all of those things, they didn't know God, they didn't understand him. They didn't know who he was. And you'll see that with the judges, the mistakes that they make, um, the mistakes that people make. It's because they didn't understand who God was. They had a misunderstanding, and they they, t- they thought he uh, required things of them that they didn't, and that he didn't. So, do we know God? Do we know who God is? Do we, do we search the scriptures to understand who the, our creator is and what he expects of us? Do we pass that knowledge to the next generation? Do we teach them why we worship the way we worship, why we meet here and have this memorial feast every Sunday? Um, it's important for us to impart, first of all, to, for us to understand ourselves and then to impart that on the next generation. So, uh, in verse 11, we see what happens because of their they're um, uh, not knowing who God is. So verse 11 through 13. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsake the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Asheroth. Again, they stray because they don't know him. And that influence from the people and the culture around them, they incorporated that, and that made it even worse, uh, them not knowing him. Uh, In verse 14 through 15, we see what happens when they do that. It's it's just a list of, uh, you know, the consequences. It's the way things go. Uh, And because of that, Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of the people who plundered them. Yet, so obviously when we disobey, the Lord is not pleased with that. He's not happy with that. Now, he made that promise to them, that if they didn't do what he said, that they would be, he would not be with them. They would not succeed in battle. They would not succeed um, conquering the lands that were promised to them. And that's what we see what happens. In contrast, what are the promises given to us? You know, we're not promised that we will um, succeed in battle, that we will succeed in life. But we are promised that we won't receive the promised land if we don't... Um, Again, uh, uphold our end of the covenant that he's made with us. 
So, uh, Lord becomes angry. The people are conquered. They're severely distressed and they can't stand it. And we're going to see this cycle over and over again. Verse 16 through 17. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, and they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. It's interesting in verse 17 um, how he likens uh, the people who made that covenant with him essentially being unfaithful. Uh, he, he likens them to a heart of it, uh, going after other gods. I think that, um, well, first of all, that's the, closely, that's the closest thing he could relate that to in our physical terms, is that promise we make to each other uh, being married, that those marriage vows that we make are, are important. And it kind of it shows how sacred they are and important it is because he likens that bond between a man and a woman uh, in, in wedding, in matrimony, to our relationship with him. And when we are unfaithful to him, it's just as if we are being unfaithful to our spouse. And that is the, um, I think that's the most hurtful thing you could do to somebody. And because you make a promise to him and then you, and then you uh, obviously go against that, that promise that covenant that you guys essentially made with each other um but the lord is i think he is and we talked about how patient he is how forgiving he is uh his people are unfaithful to him quite often and yet he still is there for them and us and takes uh them and us back uh, it shows it shows the, the character of God and who He is. Um, yeah, while even though He'll rebuke and chastise and when repent taken back, uh, He does not require that uh, of us in our own marriages. He gives us that opportunity to um, uh, to sever that covenant because of unfaithfulness, because He understands what kind of um, how hopeful that can be and the damage that it can cause. Um, but it also shows that the people that are forgiving and take them back, take the other half back, uh, that how, um, I, I don't even know the word for it, uh, God, not God-like, but it's an attribute of God, uh, that's very impressive. Obviously, I'm not saying to stay in a un, 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 uh, unfaithful uh, marriage, but um, uh, but that's just an interesting note to make. He does not expect us to to continuously forgive someone um, or take someone back. I should say, obviously, we're called to forgive, but take someone back for unfaithfulness. Um, but it's, that's a good study to have and a good thing to think about is God's uh, patience, and it, it's just astounding to think about. So, and also we see in verse 17 that it's that generation makes that, makes that choice also. They see what their fathers worshipped, and they made that decision to turn aside from what 
what they were doing. Um, they decided not to walk in the ways of their fathers. They saw what they did. They, re- they made that determination, that's not something that I want to do. So it's not only on the generation to part upon them, but it's also for that next generation to accept and to learn and to grow and to move on and move on and follow. So, in verse 18 through 23, we see the next generation that they did not understand or were familiar with them. And they chose, again, they chose not to follow. In verse 18, uh, then the Lord raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who, who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant with I, uh, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they would keep the way of the Lord to walk as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Again, this is kind of an overview of uh, the book here. That's why we're getting like a uh, um, a step back and before we get into the details. And essentially verse uh, chapter 3 is kind of showing us, um, kind of starting at the beginning there. But we see, um, every time we see people at their lowest, we see them at their highest decide, I don't need God. And I'm going to do what I want. And then they fall into this cycle of um, being oppressed. God raises up people. He uses um, people that don't believe in him or people that... um, people that know nothing of him to his will and uses them to punish the Israelites. And um, that brings them to their lowest. And at their lowest, they remember God and they cry out to him. Um, you know, I, I see people often uh, in my back seat um, make, obviously they make bad decisions that end them up in there. And I've heard people praying, hey, God help me, you know. Um, and they're at their lowest. But it makes me think um, how much how much do they do that before this point? How much do we do that before we get to our lowest? Do we... Do we pray to God? Do we, do we meditate on His Word? Just when it's bad or all the time? Um, and again, that's what you see here is that they're praying to a God essentially that they don't know. They know there's a God, but they don't know who He is. And they essentially, and we some, again, this is humans in general. Um, we want to be forgiven and be relinquished of the consequences of our actions. And obviously that's not the way that it works. Um, 
So how are we doing with that? How are we at our apexes in our lives? Are we continuously praying to God and having that relationship with Him? Remember, a relationship uh, takes communication. Um, and God communicates to us through His Word. Are we in His Word? Or are we just praying to Him and having essentially a one-sided conversation? You know, telling Him what we want, what we desire uh, of our lives, of our wishes. Um, or are we reading His Word to see what He wants of us? Because we read about what uh, his will is for us in the Bible. So let us have that uh, that two-way relationship with him. Stay in his word and uh, and keep our prayer prayer life alive and not dead. Uh, I think we're going to be uh, in chapter 3. Yep. Starting in chapter 3 now. So, in chapter 3, we're just going to read verses 1 through 3. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. The nations are the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. So it's interesting because if you see a map of this area, there are areas that are going to be untouched by the Israelites. It was part of their promised land, but it was left untouched um, because of what all the wars that they were going through, and they weren't being successful because of that covenant that they, again, voided with God. And God left them there to test them. Uh, not only to test them, but so that they would know what war was. Again, verses 4 through 8, we're going to read that they actually, they failed that test. And we'll see that they made covenants with the people of the land. They intermarried with them. They uh, they said, okay, you can serve us. We'll just oppress you and you can be servants for us. Um, and that's not what the, God wanted. He wanted them to be expelled because he knew that the influence that they would have on them. So, in verse 4 through 8, it reads, They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. I'm going to back up to verse 6. Um, I think that's something also that needs to be imparted upon our next generation is their spouse who they decide to uh, make that covenant with. Uh, that's very, very important uh, to teach them the character of the spouse that they should be looking for. Obviously, all you can do is teach, and hopefully they will abide, but um, 
telling them how important and, and making sure they know how important it is who they marry is, is so profound because that, uh, obviously that's going to be the second most important decision of their life. And that second most important decision of their life will, inf- will, uh, have influence on that first most important decision of their life. And that is to, ch- to follow God. Um, you know, and I didn't understand before I got married um, how much of an impact that has uh, until I got married and I saw how uh, you can have a spouse that either helps you up and and makes you stronger or one that can bring you down and, and almost makes you weaker with, your, with that relationship with God. So very important, and that's something that we should strive to impart upon our, our children. Um And then, so we see that, uh, again, they broke that covenant. And they were, again, had to serve for eight years. And I don't know about you guys, but I would probably be crying out to God if I was in their circumstance in the first year. So they must, uh, again, God's timeline is completely different from ours. I would assume that they were praying that entire time. Um, but, again, um God takes his time and he makes sure uh, that our, our timelines are always off. I, I remember, um, you know, growing up praying. I remember doing this as a teenager, praying for a spouse, praying for, you know, someone to uh, to love, uh, to be with. And, and it took a long time. Um, it would have, uh, I wish... Looking back, obviously I knew God's plan for me, but uh, uh, obviously now that he has imparted that plan, uh, I, I couldn't be happier. But um, patience is a virtue that is very hard for us um, to have. And so that's something that we should always work on and always be careful when you pray for it because he might give it to you um, way more than you would expect uh, for you to work on. So eight years they were in captivity. And then here we see our first judge um, being placed here. Verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now we've just read about, in chapter 1, Othniel and uh, his, his bravery already. And here... Uh, we see him again, him arise again, and him uh, taking the position, uh, the, the position of a judge. Essentially, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, verse ten, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushnan Rishnim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over him, over Cushnan Rishathim. Then the land had rest for forty. Years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. So they were in captivity for eight, and he gave them forty years of peace. Um, that's pretty impressive. And I wish we had more detail because I'm very interested to to hear about how that how that peace was imparted. Obviously, he overcame the king of Mesopotamia, um, but I don't know about you guys, but I'm curious. There's a lot of stuff that. Uh, we're just given the history, the oversight about it. We don't get the details. Uh, but how many more battles did that take? How did he keep peace? 
um, those kind of questions. But we're not given that. This is what we're given. Um, there's a couple more that we'll give uh, some some more details about, but uh, uh, it's just interesting to think about is what it took for that peace for 40 years. But now in verse 12, after Othniel died, we see, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Uh, excuse me. Because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Elon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Okay, that's a lot longer than eight years. And we'll see that each time they begin to make this cycle, it's almost like it gets longer and longer. Uh, 18 years is a long time to be in captivity, to be oppressed. Uh, and again, you know that entire time they're praying to God because uh, of their situation. He takes his time. He's hoping that they may, maybe they'll learn their lesson and, and be able to stay true. Um, but again, we see the second, uh, the second judge come up. Uh, and the, the first ten, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Again, that's another phrase that we're going to be seeing quite often about God um, using that person. And uh, pretty impressive the different ways that he uses it because it almost seems like it's different each person. Like, uh, um, not sure all the things that that encompasses in in, in the judges. Uh, we know that, like with later on with Samson, that he'll get great strength uh, in that time. But we're not really sure exactly what um, what that was for Othniel, whether it was uh, wisdom and strategy in battle or uh, or leadership. It doesn't say. Um, also, it's interesting to see that the judges that arise take note of where they're from, because you'll see them coming out from all different parts of of uh, Israel. It's not just they're all coming from a certain tribe or a certain area. They're coming from multiple. I don't think any of them come from the same spot. They're all from different different areas. So it's kind of interesting. So verse fifteen. But when the, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And we'll see, you see later on that, uh, I guess the, the tribe of Benjamite was, had a large percentage of people that were left-handed. Uh, and that'll kind of come to play in this book, but I don't know why that, uh, I don't know why that comes out so much later on. So, continuing, and the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Obviously, anytime you're being conquered by a, a ruling ruling force, you have to give up resources to them. Uh, so that's what this is, the tribute. They're giving up uh, whatever it takes for them to be um, essentially protected. But, uh, but they're going to fight against it. So, verse 16... Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very 
fat man. Uh, just to touch base on, obviously he's left-handed, which isn't very common, right? Um, and I'm assuming, since he strapped it on his right thigh, that was for the a type of a cross draw. So if he was right-handed, his sword would be on his left side. So it's not in the spot that would normally be um, thought about, um, not normally be in that position. So that's what's interesting about this. Um, all right. I'll continue. And it came out when he finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols, which were at Gilgal, Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended had left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Now the handle also went in after the blade and the fat enclosed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. Then Ehud went into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, He is only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud had escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Syria. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. He said, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab, and and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and not one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Obviously, this uh, story has a lot more detail than we saw, and and we will see in some of the other ones. Uh, Pretty interesting uh, how that played out. Um, And here, you know, we don't see... It's interesting because with the judges, we don't we see that the God was with them, but it's not like God made these some of these plans. Um, he just had he used their actions for His glory and for the good of Israel. Um, I, I don't need to go into any detail about that one. It's pretty obvious uh, um, what uh, what occurred in great detail, a little bit more than most people would like, but. Um, Again, they they were ready for war. You saw that they were ready for war because as soon as he killed the king uh, and Ehud went down, he's he's like, we're ready, let's do this. Now it's time to pursue our enemies. And they they already had to, I don't know if they already had a plan or if it just uh, occurred, but they closed off the way that the Moabites could escape, killed 10,000 of their strongest warriors. Um, So they were ready for battle. and then they had peace for 80 years. Again, 
God's almost giving them a longer amount of time, even of peace, not only of captivity, but of peace. And we'll, uh, we're going to talk quickly about our third judge, our minor judge here. And this is going to be one of the, uh, the quickest ones that we're going to talk about here. Um, it's going to be just a verse, verse 31. And after he came, Shagmar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he saved Israel. So, obviously, they had 80 years of peace. And during this, it doesn't say anything else about um, what occurred after the 80 years. But obviously, um, there was a, there was a um, fight with the Philistines, and he took down 600 with an ox goad. Now, I don't know exactly what an ox goad is. I know that it's used for part of the contraption, but it, the description that I read was like a almost like a long piece of wood with a piece of metal on it. It'd be kind of like a, almost like a spear, um, but obviously it's not a spear because it's not made for stabbing things. Um, but he took out 600 people. It's amazing uh, what people can do when God is with them. I couldn't imagine trying to fight hand-to-hand combat 600 people. And we don't know if this was all obviously all at one time or stretched out, but even, um, I don't know if you guys have ever gotten into a fight before or even sparred with somebody but two minutes is exhausting and that's uh with with just your hands when you got start wielding weapons and you have armor uh it it's impressive to try to think about and put yourself in that that uh, situation so obviously god was definitely having a hand and was with him i uh Getting into Deborah and Barak is going to be a little bit longer. This is one of our longer sections, um, so I think we're going to end here. Thank you guys for your time. And, again, if you guys have any comments, questions, uh, feel free to approach me. I encourage it. Uh, or you can just pass me a note if uh, there's something that I'm missing or something that should be said. Um, I really enjoy feedback. Uh, so thank you.